Has the world completely lost the concept of common courtesy? Am I the only one who is resisting this tide? People of Seattle, listen to me! We are not barbarians! We are not Neanderthals! And we are not French! Do you hear that, you up there? Good morning, and welcome to episode 399 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined as always by Sam Miller. Today, our season preview tour from the bottom to the top of the Pakoda projected standings takes us to the Seattle Mariners. Later in this episode, Nick Wheatley-Scheller will be talking to Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times. Right now, we will be talking to Mike Curto, the longtime uh, voice of the Tacoma Rainiers. Hello, Mike. Hey, guys. It's, it's intimidating to have a professional broadcaster on the show. I feel like the, the contrast between us and professional broadcasters is, is stronger when we have one on. I don't think you should be intimidated. You're talking to a minor league broadcaster here. <laughs> this is not your major league call-up right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so speaking of that, you, you wrote the Mariners essay for Baseball Prospectus 2014, and you start your essay with an anecdote. From the Rainiers last season, uh, you talk about how there was a game that was delayed by rain. It was it would have been an official game if it had been called, and the Rainiers were losing the game. And uh, you say that there were some players who were rooting for the game to be called, and you kind of uh, present that as a, a symbol of the Mariners' organizational dysfunction. And I wondered, is that... Uh, is that unusual for a AAA team? Because, you know, AAA teams just kind of have that reputation of you've got some some bitter, disillusioned veterans who maybe are on the downside of their careers or they think they should be back in the majors. And then you've got some guys who are on the verge of the major leagues and maybe they have their eyes on that. Are, are AAA players concerned about winning AAA games? There's a real mix. Uh, you know, that uh, I, I use that anecdote because there were players on the team who were angry about it, you know? And so there, there, there are different types of players in AAA baseball, and some of them care about winning. Some of them have been on the team all year, and they don't want their season to end. You know, they want to try to win the division and get to the playoffs, and that's important to them. That's why they do it. And, you know, then there's other guys who just, their eye is on the prize, and their prize is different. They're trying to get to the major leagues, and that's all they care about. And, uh, you know, trip. Triple A is kind of in a, a weird spot in the baseball world because of that. Uh, in the lower minor leagues, you know, the when you've got, if you're an A ball, you've got 25 guys on the team, and the reality is that probably only one or two of them, maybe three or four, are going to get promoted during the season at all. So, uh, really, they're kind of in it for the, for the season, you know. And so those guys, while individual performance is so important, they kind of gather around the team a little bit more, I think, and. At AAA, you know, there's there's so much looking above, you know. I mean, someone pulls a groin muscle in the major leagues and he plays your position. Hey, you might get called up, you know. And mm-hmm. it's you can understand how some players would would maybe lose sight of the team game a little bit. But uh, still, uh, you know, that, that there's, uh, there's plenty of players on a team in both AAA leagues who are actually trying to win games, and that's something that they're trying to do. So you've been with um, the Rainiers for a while, since before the Jack Sorensic uh, front office. So you've seen a, a sort of a turnover in the front office. And so do, do you see a change 
in the AAA club and in the way that the player development works and in the way that the culture of the AAA club is when the front office changes, or does that stuff mostly stay the same no matter who's the, the GM and who's in charge at the big league level? Uh, that's a, a good question, and I think that that might be something that a lot of listeners might, might not be aware of, but the changes are massive every time there's a, a change at the top in an organization all through the farm system. I've seen, uh, in, the reality is I've seen three separate regimes with the Mariners in my time with the AAA team at Tacoma. I've been here 15 seasons. And when I came in, it was the Pat Gillick Mariners. And, uh, you know, they, that, that was a very well-run minor league organization at the time, it, at least to my eyes. I'm a little bit of an outsider. But, yeah, I was really impressed uh, with the communication and with the quality of people they had in terms of minor league coaches and instructors throughout the organization. And then the Gillick era ended and we had the Bavese area and now you've got a new farm director. They flushed out a bunch of minor league coaches over time uh, who had been in the organization for a long period of time, brought in new people. And uh, right around the time that group was getting settled, the Bavese regime was over. And now we have the Zarenzik regime and it has been a complete turnover of staffing and people in the minor leagues. And, uh, just uh, in the front office and in the minors, just a nonstop churning of people leaving uh, either on their own accord or because, you know, against their own accord and and new people coming in. So it's just a constant changes of faces. Uh, this is going to be the 20th year that the Rainiers have been the AAA affiliate of the Mariners, and it'll be the first season in the 20 years that uh, Tacoma's going to have a manager who was not brought in or who was not brought up along the uh, the minor league ranks of the Mariners system. They actually brought in someone from outside the organization, and Rich Donnelly never happened before with a Mariners AAA team in Tacoma. So that's just a, you know, it's a different philosophy. I'm not saying it's good or it's bad. It's just you know it's a different way of doing business, and you know it's uh, and it kind of uh, for me as a radio broadcaster, every uh, broadcaster, every time there's a new regime, I have to get ready to work with a lot of new people. So I don't know what the, the bigger news was this winter, whether it was the Robinson Cano signing or Jeff Baker's Seattle Times article. <laughs> um, was To people who are around the Mariners all the time and who follow the Mariners, was that article, did it come as as much of a shock as it did to many people around baseball? Or was the, the only shocking thing that people were willing to go on the record about it and, and maybe there had been some whispers or some scuttlebutt about this sort of thing? Uh, I think that uh, the the real shock was that people went on the record. That was the surprise. And, you know, people who had a lot of respect in the game went on the record. And I think that was the stunning part uh, about it for uh, people in the organization and outside of the organization and throughout baseball. And you guys kind of have a thumb on that. And uh, I, I'm sure that that was sort of what you guys were hearing as well in terms of the reaction, just that they couldn't believe people, you know, put their name on their quotes <laughs> in that story, because that was kind of stunning. I hadn't really seen that before, except for in, you know, books written by guys when they're done playing, or being, you know, being involved in baseball. So uh, that, that was the surprise. Do you think, I mean, is there any effect on a player who's coming up through the system and, and reads that? Is, is a player you know, upset to be in the system or, or worried about the people who are deciding his fate when he sees a story like that? I don't really think so. I hope not. Um, it's just a, uh, 
it really isn't relevant, I don't think, to the players. Uh, uh-huh. You know, especially if you're a minor league player trying to reach the major leagues, you have to, you just have to do work as hard as you can, and you know, try to take the coaching to to improve your game. And you can't really worry about the the, the front office uh, issues such as that because uh, that, that's it's just out of your control. Uh, and. We, you know, a lot of people talked about when when the Mariners did sign Cano and seemed to blow all the other offers out of the water. That they had had a lot of trouble uh, bringing in free agents, mostly hitters, but even someone like David Price saying he wasn't willing to sign an extension with the team. What was that? What was driving that? Do you think is it is it the city? It, it, I mean, you could you could think maybe it was the ballpark for hitters, but. That wouldn't really apply to a pitcher. What what do you think was the source of that difficulty in getting guys to to come or to stay in Seattle? Well, I think that uh, you know, for some of the big free agents in the past, I think they got. Uh, I think it's twofold. There's the 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 fact that they got equal or maybe slightly better offers from other teams, and you know, the the Mariners haven't won in years. And if you're Prince Fielder a couple of years ago, or Josh Hamilton two years ago. Or David Price with an impending free agent free agency coming and the ability to decide where you're going to play, you know, without any track record of winning in Seattle, it's hard to be the guy who is going to 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 commit, you know, and say, all right, we're going to turn this around and I'm going to be a part of it. When on the other hand, you could go to Detroit or you could go to the Angels and or you know teams that have you know, have a, a better recent track record and are more likely to win. And it's just, uh, you know, I just think that, I think that's really what it came down to. And Cano was, Cano was different and he was different because the Mariners blew away all other financial offers as far as we're aware. And, you know, that's the, the, the financial difference between signing with the Mariners and going elsewhere was just massive. And it was the right thing for him to do that in that regard. Was it a surprise that, uh, that they got Cano this offseason, or did you have the sense that they were really sort of committed to doing what it took this offseason uh, in a way that maybe they wouldn't have the last two? And then secondarily, was it a surprise that they sort of stopped after that? And, you know, they got Hart and, and Morrison, but they didn't sort of, you know, manage to pull off that one extra big deal that they were often rumored to. Was that a surprise? Yeah, I, well, first, to start with the Cano issue, I think everyone up here was stunned that it actually happened. I mean, yeah, you know, we've been reading for years about how the Mariners have made these big plays for free agents, and they never end up getting the guy. And this year, they make the play for the free agent, and they actually got him. And you know, people up here were stunned that it happened. And you know, the people who follow the team closely know that they have uh, massive payroll to spend, or they at least they did before Cano. And uh, even with Cano and the subsequent signings, they still. Uh, as of today, in terms of what we publicly know about the payroll, they're still right about even or maybe a little bit less than they were last year. So they haven't raised it. And uh, I think that is a little bit of a surprise that they haven't made additional moves. And, you know, you look at their roster right now and it's flawed and they have a massive starting rotation issue and they haven't, you know, tried to change it this off season. And it, it could be for a couple of reasons. Maybe they don't think Irvin Santana and his years and 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 contract demands make sense in terms of the future. Even though it might make sense to sign him right now, this minute, they might look at what his demands are and they might say, you know, that's it's out of line with what we think it, he he 
deserves. And, you know, I think they probably went through the same process with Nelson Cruz. And, you know, it's just a little bit unusual, though, that they haven't done anything else. And, you know, now there's this new thing where Cano has come out and publicly <laughs> said that, hey, sign my buddy Nelson Cruz. Now, hey, sign my buddy Irvin Santana. And, you know, the, the Mariners haven't had a player trying to pull strings like that in public in a decade at least. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Cano, clearly still a Yankee at heart, uh, <laughs> says yeah. uh, that— <laughs> if it if it were up to him, he'd have signed Santana, Cruz, and Jimenez, and Morales. It seems like basically <laughs> any free agent remaining when he signed, he would have acquired. Um, is that a worrisome sign? Does that strike you as you know when you have a a guy who is going to be taking up a large percentage of the payroll and for the next decade, uh, and you don't know whether maybe he was promised that the team would make further moves when he when he signed or what, but. If they start the season not having done something and don't have a winning season, is that potentially some kind of you know clubhouse problem in the making? Uh, I guess it could be potentially, although I found it to be refreshing that Cano came out and said that type of stuff. But uh, you know, the uh, if they don't come out and have a, a winning season this year, it'll probably be an all new front office the next year anyway. So mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if there'll be any stress as a result of that or any sort of clubhouse problem because, you know, Cano, it's, I think it's great that he's a little outspoken and he wants the team to be better. And he, you know, that and he'd love to see them make some moves to get better. And I don't think anyone up here in the public anyway is going to say that's a bad thing. So two of the, the real bright spots for the Mariners last year and, and going forward are, are Miller and, and Seager. And neither one of those guys was like really an elite prospect coming up. And you saw both of them in Tacoma, uh, Miller more than, than Seager. And, um, and then meanwhile, there have been kind of other guys who have been big prospects who have sort of disappointed. And Montero's a big one, uh, though he wasn't you know, brought up by Seattle. But, you know, he's a big one and an athlete to some degree. And so of, of kind of, of all the guys who are on the big league roster right now, uh, who you've seen go through Tacoma? Is there any? Is there any one of them whose performance at the big league level most surprises you, based on what you saw? Um, in a yeah, I, well, I would say the one that most surprises me is Ackley. I thought that he was a guy who was going to be able to hit 280, 290 in his sleep, and you know, bat over 300 in seasons with a high on base percentage. And he he did that when he first got called up, and then he went into basically a year-and-a-half-long slump. And we're hoping that's all it was because he was back in form in the second half last season, hit over 300 in the second half, and drew walks. And uh, apparently he's stinging it in spring training, and we know how important those spring training stats are. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he's a guy who I just thought was going to hit and hit and hit, and I was stunned by how he had a difficult transition through that sophomore season. So I'm hoping he's back on track this year. He's a great guy and, you know, he's someone you want to see have success. Uh, Did you see him make any major changes when he was demoted last year and, and then returned and, and hit again? Was he working on something while he was down there that, that maybe gave him better results? To, as far as I could tell, it was just confidence. He needed to uh, just, you know, believe he could, sting the ball to all fields again and I, I I think it was strictly a cops he needed to feel like he was a good player again and you know go to Colorado Springs and get 11 hits in four days <laughs> you know and you just have have an experience like that again mm -hmm. and uh, I think that 
you know, that really it was just him getting back on track mentally more than anything else. And I know Hojo, our hitting coach uh, last year, who's now the Mariners hitting coach. I know that I know that he worked a lot with him during his time here and maybe made some uh, real minor nuance uh, changes. But it, it was mostly a mental uh, a mental change, I think. So uh, I don't know. You probably don't remember this, but 12 years ago, you did an interview with Rob Nyer. And he asked you about you know, when your broadcast with Tacoma. He said, what kind of statistics play a role in your broadcast? Is there a place for sabermetrics? Or do you just not have time for anything more complicated than triple crown stats? And at the time, this was 2002, you said, I think that sabermetrics does have a place in broadcasting, but in small doses. And it's interesting because um, 12 years ago, I didn't even know what sabermetrics was. And, I mean, obviously, things have come a long, 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 long ways um, but I'm not sure that the answer to that question would actually be any different. Has the has the growth of sabermetrics and the mainstream uh, media and pretty much everywhere we look, and certainly in the game and in front offices, translated to sort of the 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 general fan that you're talking to in your broadcasts? Um, I, I agree with you. I don't think my answer to that question would have changed at all. Uh, I I still will try to mix in some things from time to time. One thing I talk about a lot in the Pacific Coast League is park effects because they're a huge issue in our league. And I don't say, all right, we're at Isotopes Park in Albuquerque and it has a park, you know, a park number of 140 or whatever it is. But uh, I don't put a number on it like that. But I explain, you know, the differences and how when someone's hitting 300 with 20 home runs in Albuquerque, you've got to look and see what he's doing on home and versus uh, on the road because of the differences in elevation and how the ball flies and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, is that sabermetrics? I don't know, but that's sort of a more advanced look at stats that that I do talk about on the air. But on the other hand, I'm not like citing players, uh, you know, warp or anything like that on the air. Uh, I'll, I'll go to on base percentage all the time, but. You know, I'm not going to go to fielding metrics or anything like that. It's just I don't, I don't want to math it up too much and make it too complicated. It's a baseball game on the radio, you know? Yeah, it does sort of feel like even maybe 20 years from now, the answer might be the same. And it won't be kind of it won't be a bad reflection on anybody. It's just that when you're talking about something, you have to sort of keep it simple. You have to keep it, it. Brevity is key. You've only got a few seconds in between pitches and you don't have. Uh, you know, numbers aren't going to work as well. Charts aren't going to work as well. You can't link to the definition of the word and explain how different sites disagree about things and and all that. So it might. It seems like it might just be something that that no matter what happens is it's it's always going to be pretty simple stuff in broadcast. Is that a fair prog? Uh, you know, uh, uh, pro- uh, prognostication for the future. I think it might be because I don't know if fans enjoying the game on television or on the radio really want to analyze the stats. You know, it's uh, I don't know if that's the goal of the person following the game. And I think it is uh, the goal for a lot of fans who are online, you know, look at, you know, looking up things about their their team and, and, you know, looking at stats online. That's where it's much more popular, I think. So a couple more things on the Mariners. You you mentioned in your essay that uh, there was sort of a general apathy surrounding the team, uh, even you know when when Wedge quit or, or when some things happened late in the season or early in the off season, no one particularly cared. Um, and of course, attendance has has fallen pretty dramatically, going back to 2002 again, when obviously it was a very successful team and was was leading the majors in attendance and and led the league in TV ratings many of those years. Uh, which is, it, 
sort of strange to me that it's fallen that much just because I feel like I would go hang out at Safeco Field even if the Mariners weren't playing. It's kind of a pretty pretty place. Uh, but have have things changed after the, the Cano signing and some of the other moves? Are people at all excited about Mariners baseball now? It, it hasn't changed at all yet. Uh, and part of that is has nothing to do with them. The Seahawks have ruled the world up here. And, you know, they won the Super Bowl and people are still basking in the glory of that. And it's still the number one storyline in the Pacific Northwest. So uh, the Mariners are certainly taking a backseat to that. And it's not I don't see it changing until they start winning. It's that's just I think the way it's going to be up here. The Mariners are going to be in the public eye, uh, riding deep in the backseat in a car seat behind the parents uh, Richard Sherman and Pete Carroll driving the vehicle <laughs> and uh, and the, the Mariners have to win or else it's going to continue on that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned the the uh, surplus of, of designated hitters that seem to have been on the roster this year and last year. And it's it's hard to think of so, you know, sudden and dramatic a shift in a, a team building philosophy in one general manager's tenure going from just a, an all-defense team to a terrible defense team that has a bunch of guys who seemingly are DHs or, or should be DHs. Um, to what do you attribute that, uh, that sudden change? Was it just too hard to, to watch you know, people who couldn't hit year after year, even if they were really good at catching the ball? I think that might be a part of it, actually, uh, Ben. The... Uh... You know, they, they had the, the great defensive club there for, what, about two years, and they couldn't score any runs. So all you ever heard about in the media here when you talked to fans or you went to the barbershop was, you know, the, the Mariners, they don't score any runs. <laughs> and so they, they changed that a little bit. And, you know, now they hit home runs and play poor defense, and they get the same result. And, you know, it's, it's been absolutely a change in the philosophy of the club, no question, because they're continuing down that road this season. But, uh, you know, the, the result has been the same. And, you know, it hasn't helped with the teams, uh, you know, with, with the way they appear in the public eye. And, you know, the, the fans still complain now. They just complain that the team keeps losing. You know, it's just I, I think they're just kind of struggling to find the, the mix that's going to get them over the hump and get them over 500. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nick Franklin is a, another guy who you've gotten to see in Tacoma for a couple of years. Um, what do you think his future is either in this organization or in another? I think Nick's going to be a very good major league player. And I just am, you know, I think it's probably going to happen with another team. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's just blocked. <laughs> he's just blocked. Uh, you know, he was playing second base and they signed Robinson Cano and, then at shortstop, uh, he might be able to out-hit Brad Miller, but Miller is going to have better range defensively. They're battling right now in spring training to, to be the starting shortstop. In fact, there was an article here in the newspaper, winner to Seattle, loser to Tacoma was the headline of the, the story about the shortstop battle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they both have options left for a couple of years, so they can send one of them to AAA. But in the end, I think that Miller's range at shortstop is going to, allow him to win that battle we'll see maybe i'm wrong uh but you know i'm convinced franklin's gonna hit and the reason why is based on something i saw myself he originally came to triple a for the last two months or so of the 2012 season came up from double a where he was having a good year 
and he struggled in his uh, first AAA exposure for two months, had problems with strikeouts, didn't hit that well, got frustrated, worked really hard, and then the season ended, and came back the following April and was just a different player, so much improved. You know, took com control of every plate appearance, was in command of the count, both sides of the plate driving the ball into the alleys. Uh, it was just unbelievably improved and played his way to the major leagues last year. And then he gets to the big leagues and he goes through the rookie struggles, especially once he'd been through the circuit once. And just from what I saw the first time, how much he improved from one year to the next after he experienced a level for the first time, I think this guy's going to do that again. And I think he's going to massively improve his major league numbers from what we saw last year and, and become a quality major leaguer. There's just, I don't know where that's going to happen. You know, it's, there's, there just isn't a spot right now uh, with the Mariners. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, we we always force or try to force people to make some sort of prediction, uh, either a win total or, or a finish in the division. Pakota actually has the Mariners as a winning team by a, a few games this year. Is Are that, you serious? It, it does, uh, <laughs> which is... Uh, yeah, sort of surprising that the Mariners preview is coming this late in the in the series, but does have them as a an eighty three and seventy nine team. Uh, so what is what is your prediction? Wow, so much of that is dependent on two starting pitchers who are not on the mound right now. It's right, because of injuries in Hisashi Iwakuma and Taiwan Walker. Um, maybe it's just. I want to be an optimist, and I want to give them 82 wins, but I just think that the number is going to be 79 or 80. Mm -hmm. That's where I see it. So that that would probably lead to some changes at the end of the season. I don't know. It might be close enough to 500 to keep it keep it together for another year. Uh huh. Down around 70, though. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Um, you can follow Mike at Curto World, C-U-R-T-O World on Twitter. Uh, you can find his, his writing at rainierscurto.wordpress.com. Uh, you can listen to him on South Sound Sports, 8.50 a.m. And he also writes about some of the Rainier's Away games for the News Tribune. Uh, so thanks again, Mike. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. And thanks for letting me be a part of the annual book. Sure. You're, yeah, your chapter was great. Uh, so... Please uh, support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Go to BaseballReference.com, subscribe to the Play Index, use the coupon code BP for a $6 discount on a one-year subscription. And now Nick Wheatley-Schaller will talk to Ryan Divish. Welcome to Drop Third Strike. I'm Nick Wheatley-Schaller, and I'll be interviewing beat writers, columnists, and broadcasters from around the country, getting their perspective on the teams they cover. I'm here with Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times. How's it going, Ryan? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I'm doing all right. So Seattle had a rough stretch over the past few years. They, they went 61 and 101 in 2010, then added six wins in 2011 and, and another eight wins in 2012. Unfortunately, last year was a setback as they went from 75 wins down to 71 wins. This offseason, they signed Robinson Cano to a $240 million contract. They added Corey Hart and Logan Morrison to help their lineup. Their lineup was third worst in the American League last year in runs scored. Um, the rotation was a bit better. Felix Hernandez and Hisashi Iwakuma helped that helped them finish fourth in baseball and walk rate and sixth in ground ball rate. The Cano signing suggests that they're looking to compete for a playoff spot this year. How much will their offense need to uh, improve in order to make that a possibility? Um, <laughs> I think it'll have to 
improved significantly. I mean, Seattle is a team that, you know, and I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but, you know, has scored more or less runs than they've given up consistently for, I think, the last four years. And even beyond that, um, I mean, I started covering the team in 2007. They had a, a winning record, I think, that year and scored less runs than uh, they gave up. And they, as well, in 2009, the yeah. last time they had a, a, a above-average record. So, yeah, it's got to get better. I mean, that's the whole reason they had to, one of the reasons they had to sign Robinson Cano is to address that issue. Um, and more more importantly, I think, for that, that signing was just to change the, the perception of the team yeah. in the Seattle area and within the fan base. But, yeah, no, I have to get better. It, it certainly can't get any worse. So I, mm-hmm. I, I, that's been the whole um, impetus for Jackson. I just don't know that they knew how to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like if you, last year I think they tried to do it by home runs, and they were second in the league in the home runs. Yeah. They were terrible yeah. otherwise. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, it just doesn't seem like the best plan right now. How good of a job has the Cano signing done of changing the Mariners fans' feelings about the organization? Um. It's done a little bit of a, a good job. I mean, it's not great uh, because there is just a lot of anger towards upper management, and that hasn't changed um, for the most part. And, uh, President Chuck Armstrong resigned recently, but CEO Howard Lincoln is still there. General Manager Zach Jackson Renz is still there, and and well, to many fans, they're the root of the problem, especially Lincoln. So it hasn't changed in that regard, and. Um, there is a skepticism when it comes to that team because of the upper management. Yeah. But at the same time, do, by signing Cano, it does signal that they are willing to spend money. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that now that once they spent that, a lot of fans think, hey, let's open checkbook, keep writing checks. And it, hasn't, it can't just be that way either. Nick Franklin was an up-and-comer last year at second base. In the minors, he had showed some power and patience. He was drafted 27th overall in 2009. He was called up at the end of May. Um, he had some contact issues, which uh, limited his overall batting line, but that power and patience showed up in the majors. Um, with Cano signed to play long-term at second, Franklin's kind of out in the wind. He just turned 23 on Sunday, so he could be a very valuable uh, trade piece. What does the future hold for him? Yeah, that's an question. I, I think for the Mariners, they've told Nick Franklin that he can come in and compete with Brad Miller for the shortstop position. Uh, Nick was a shortstop when they drafted. He was a shortstop really up until last year when he was called up. But there, there have been questions with scouts about his range, uh, which isn't great. There's been questions about his arm strength, which, you know, it's, it's about an average arm even for a big league shortstop. I mean, but I think the bigger question is just kind of a focus. Nick at times had, had kind of kind of lose focus in games and make some silly mistakes on routine balls that, you know, even in the minor leagues that, that aren't typical of a big league player. Yeah. So I, I think that's been an issue. He's tried to address this year coming in. He's, he's competing with Brad. He's looked pretty good at shortstop, you know, in limited time we've seen him. So they're doing that. And in a way, having Nick play shortstop does increase his trade value. Um, scouts are here watching him this spring. The Mets have been interested. The Rays have been interested. They're looking at him to see can he play short on even a an average, just slightly above average basis. So one, you could either use him as your shortstop, or two, you'd feel comfortable enough having him as your second baseman, but knowing that he could play some shortstop as well. So I think that helps him. Uh, with the Mariners, in, in that regard, 
they're they're not forced to trade him. I mean, because he's young and he has AAA options. If he doesn't win the job from Brad Miller, then he can go to AAA and they can keep him there and have some insurance if Miller were to struggle or if they do decide to trade him. So I, I think the Mariners are in a position of, of strength in this that they don't have to make a decision right away. I think a lot of people thought once Cano signed that Franco was automatically going to be dealt. Well, you know, you don't have to deal somebody just for the sake of dealing them when you have them under club control and they have AAA options. So I think that's kind of the way the Mariners are looking at it. Dustin Ackley is another one of those recent first-round picks. He actually came up as a second baseman and has since moved to the outfield um, after um, having a couple few good months when he arrived in the majors in June of 2011. His offense has declined. He was actually sent down to AAA for a month last summer. Um, he was much, bad, much better in the last couple months of 2013. He hit some doubles, drew some walks. Now he's moving from center field to left field. What kind of defense can he can we expect to see him play in left, and can he develop enough power to hit well enough for a corner outfielder? You know, uh, defensively, he's, he's never going to be great because he doesn't have a very strong throwing arm. That was the whole reason they converted him to second base when he was drafted. I mean, he a lot of people felt he should have been an outfielder from the very beginning, uh, but his you know bad throwing arm, and he had Tommy John on that arm when he was in college. So um, that, that, that's going to limit him from ever being a great defensive outfielder. He, he certainly has the speed to be good. Um, he runs well. You know, he's looked fine in left field. I, I think everybody thought when they first converted him to the outfield that that would be the place he should play. Um, he's looked the best there. And so that, that part is fine. The power, I don't know that he's ever going to be a power guy, like a traditional corner power guy. I mean, if you get 15 to... 18 home runs out of him. I think that would be uh, a blessing. He's 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 more of a line drive hitter. He doesn't hit with a ton of backspin. Mm-hmm. But I think you know, optimally, people believe when he was drafted, anyways, that he could be a 300 level hitter. Now we didn't see that because the league adjusted to him, and then when he tried to adjust back to the league, he made some absurd batting stance changes and stuff that was just really overhauling something that didn't need to be fixed. And then part of his struggles were that. And so then when he finally decided to go back to his old way last year after struggling so much, it just didn't work right. And he picked up some bad habits, and, and he had to readjust again. So I think this year we've seen the spring that he's been a lot better. He stayed with the kind of the same approach. And I think, too, not having uh, manager Eric Wedge and kind of his different hitting philosophy from Ackley and just kind of having that lorded over him all the time, will benefit Dustin. I think he's a guy that just is a little cerebral when it comes to it and wants to do it his way. And you know what? I think at this point, you might as well let him try because what they've been trying to force upon him hasn't been working in the past year or so. The Mariners signed Logan Morrison and Corey Hart to play right field and DH respectively. Hart is really pretty much a DH at this point. Morrison has had some problems with his defense in the past. How good does his offense need to be to keep him in the lineup? Yeah, he's going to be pretty good. I, mm-hmm. the, the Mariners are holding out hope that, that maybe Hart can play in the outfield a couple days a week and yeah. then maybe steal a game or two at first base. Um, they need Hart to be good because he's a right-handed bat. If you look at their lineup, the projected everyday lineup, it's heavy left-handed, really only Hart and Mike Zanino and then switching Justin Smoke are, are right-handed guys. Yeah. That, that really makes them top-heavy in that way. So they need Hart to be good. 
And and so far, Hart seems okay. He seems healthy. You know, he's he's in better shape. But two knee surgeries, two microfracture knee surgeries are a tough thing to come back from. As far as Morrison goes, you know, you you didn't give up much to get him. Yeah. Uh, and you you don't have to force the situation with him. You don't have to force him into your lineup if he's not fitting. You have some options you can do with him, but. You know, they've used him at first base. He looks okay. He can play a little bit of left field if you want to try and hide him. I mean, this is an organization that played Raul Abanez for like 90 games in the outfield last year. So, I mean, it's not like they're not used to having uh, poor defense in the outfield. Um, so, yeah, they, they can do some things. They'll have to be creative. But right now, you know, the best positions for Morrison and Hart are, are probably the first base for or DH, and, and that just doesn't work when you have Justin Smoke. So it's going to be creative to see how Lloyd McClendon does this. How could uh, Abraham Elmonte fit into the outfield mix? You know, I think he has a chance. Um, McClendon likes him because he can run. He makes stuff happen at the top of the, you know, he makes stuff happen when he's on base. The switch hitter, you know, got a little bit of pop, he'll bunt, he'll kind of slash at some balls. You know, he's not real picky about how he gets on. You know, the on-base percentage could be a little bit better. We've seen him try to be a little more selective with pitches this year. And the fact that Armante can play all three positions in the outfield helps. Um, I don't know that he's really great at any one of them. You know, he has issues with each of them, including center field. Yeah, He was a second baseman when he was with the Yankees and was converted to the outfield. So he's got, you know, some conversion issues to that still that they're trying to work through. But, you know, he would feel comfortable, and that, that versatility is something that, that McClendon likes. I think he has a chance to be the fourth outfielder coming down in the spring. Justin Smoke improved a bit last year. He hit for more power at home, which had been a problem in the past, got his walk rate back up after a decline the previous year. Um, you mentioned that he's one of the few guys who does hit from the right side. He's a switch hitter, but he hits much worse from the right side. Um it's hard to see him living up to his projection as a prospect when there were comparisons to a switch-hitting Justin Morneau. Do the Mariners view him as a long-term option at first? No, I, I think it's probably kind of a show-me year for Smoke. Yeah. You know, he's arbitration eligible, so uh, the Mariners have some decisions to make with him in terms of how much they're going to have to pay him going forward. Uh, you know, he's been better right-handed this spring. He, he did a lot of changes. Um, to it, and the one thing when you're a switch hitter, there's so many right-handers. You're batting left-handed predominantly, anyway. Exactly. Uh, I, I think it's been better than it's been in the past, but we'll see. You know, Justin, that's the thing you analyze. You know, if you go back and look at the game logs, it'll be a, a two-week stretch or a three-week stretch where he just, you know, massive, massive, uh, you know, slugging, and he'll hit homers and doubles, and you know, last his, his on-base percentage skyrocketed last year. He, he actually, you know, was a little more selective. Um, yeah. The knock on him had been that he didn't have great pitch recognition skills, but, he, you know, career high in walks. I don't, I think he was like second or third on the team in OBP. So, it, I mean, that part's come along. The progression is just slower than people have thought with Justin. And I think you do have to re-examine the expectations, but he isn't going to be a 35-home run guy like Morneau was. He's just not. I mean, He's more of a 20 to 25 home run guy. And, and if he can do that, but hit a bunch of doubles, yeah. and then keep your OVP up a little bit, and then play pretty good defense, you'll take that. I mean, it's not great, but if you look at it this way, James Loney, uh, 
you know, he's a 300-level hitter, but he hits a ton of doubles, doesn't hit a ton of home runs for a first baseman. You, you can make it work if you're creative, if you have a good enough lineup around you. That's been the problem with Smoke is, while his numbers aren't great, they're not horrible, but the Mariners have been anybody else around their lineup to offset the inconsistency that he's had. So I, I think that's been an issue as well. But they're hopeful. I mean, you, but the thing is, you see little bits and pieces. He canalizes you with, with stretches where you think, okay, maybe this kid's got to figure it out, and then he, he has you know a month-long struggle. So we'll see. But you know, Robinson Cano has actually taken a huge interest in him this year, working with him and doing some things, and it, it seems to be helping. But again, it's, it's spring training, so carrying that over from to the regular season is pretty difficult. Kyle Seeger took a nice step forward in the second in his second full uh, year in the big leagues. He had a 338 on base percentage, over 695 plate appearances in 160 games. He becomes arbitration eligible after this year, and he could be a nice figure in the infield along Cano um, in the future. Are the Mariners interested in extending Seeger, or do they want to wait and see if he can continue to improve at the plate? They should be interested in extending him, and I think if they're not, the smart thing to do now is start buying out these arbitration years and, and locking these guys up a little bit. I mean, especially for somebody like Seager, you're not going to have to pay him ridiculous Freddie Freeman-like numbers. You know, he's a good quality third baseman, but he's not, you know, it's not astronomical numbers. You're going to have to do to lock him up for a few years. He's gotten better every year. Um the batting average has gone up a little bit. The power has gone up a little bit. Every time we think, oh, this is about as good as he can be, he shows us that he can do just a little bit more. You know, he's not going to be a 30-home run guy. Um, you know, he's not going to be Longoria at third base and all those guys. But he's, he's got some talent. You know, the one thing you think is that that on-base percentage and, and the, uh, you know, the number of doubles maybe, you know, he's the LPS up a little bit of, and then also just the batting average in general just going up. Um, you know, I think he just needs a guy that works at it. He's durable. He plays almost every day. Like you said, you know, 160 games. Yeah. You can depend on him. It's not flashy at times, but he isn't one of those guys that has huge peaks and valleys. Last year was like the first time he had an 0 for 20 slump, and he'd never gone 0 for 20, I think, in his big league career until last year. And, and then – after we mentioned it to him, I think he had four hits in his next six at bat. So he's he's pretty consistent. He's pretty steady. And I, you're right. If the Mariners were smart uh, financially, he's got so much tied up in, in Cano and Hernandez. If he was Hernandez, you would be smart to try and get a little bit of a discount and extend Kyle Seager now. How much do those contracts affect how aggressive they are trying to extend guys? Um, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. Uh, the Mariners bought their own regional sports network, Root Sports, this past year. Now, the thing is, you know, people hear that and think, oh, yeah, they got all this money in the world right now to, to start spending. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. They had to spend a significant amount of capital yeah. to purchase this this network. And they, they're not really reaping the benefits of owning it yet. I mean, not in the first year. I mean, all the money that people say, well, they're going to get a billion dollars, whatever you know, these say about these things, it's all projectionable. You don't necessarily see it. Now, can they project added revenues so that they can add to their budget? Yeah. And the Mariners aren't exactly poor, even though the, the new Nintendo system, their owners, the new Nintendo system didn't work very well. They're still not poor. So they can spend money, and they just gave $240 million to a guy. So no, they, it's, 
they have they have some ability to do that. It's just a matter of do they have the players to sign extensions to. Right now, Kyle Seager is the only guy you look at and say, okay, yeah, definitely you want to give an extension to. Yeah, over on the pitching side of things, Taiwan Walker and uh, Iwakuma will miss the start of the season, both with minor injuries. Iwakuma was one of the best pitchers in the majors last year. He's nursing, nursing an injured finger, um, which still I think needs to be in a splint for another week or two. Um, Walker is a top prospect who held his own in three big league starts last year. He was shut down last week with inflammation in his shoulder. How long will it take those guys to get up to full strength, and what does that mean for the Mariners' rotation in April? Well, Lynn McClendon pretty much admitted neither of them will be ready by the, the opening week of the season. Yeah. Um, Iwakuma, you know, he, he doesn't probably start throwing for another week or two. And, you know, and then you got to build it all back up. I think we were kind of looking at the third or fourth week in, in April. Um, so, I mean, his isn't as big of a deal. I mean, I don't think they're worried about it completely. It's just kind of a food deal that happened. It, it's, it's a healable injury without surgery or anything like that. So they, they know that'll be fine. Um, and replacing one starter, I mean, if you're a major league organization, you can't replace one starter for three weeks and you have bigger problems than you think. Uh, the, the injury with Taiwan is... is is curious. Um, he came in with it, basically. Uh, we haven't really heard, you know, how he injured it. He had some issues with it in the, the offseason with soreness. Um, but th- they're concerned. The thing was, is there was no guarantee Taiwan was going to be in the rotation. I think they wanted him to. I think, you know, he had the talent to be. I mean, but he's still 21 years old and it only had three big league starts. So they, there wasn't a guarantee he'd be there. So there's no reason to fast-track it, and that's why they're being ultra-careful. But once he's back, and he's supposed to throw on Thursday and play catch on Thursday, he has to play like a week's worth of catch without pain each day before they even move up to long toss. And then they move to long toss and have to be pain-free, and then they move up. It's very incremental, and they're going to go ultra-slow with Taiwan because he's so young and because he, you know, he's a big part of their future that they're not going to do anything to speed it up and might put that shoulder back in harm's way. So what they got to do, what they got to do now is determine, you know, you have basically Felix Hernandez and then four spots mm-hmm. left. Now they think, I mean, smart money is to say that Erasmo Ramirez and James Paxton will be in that rotation as long as they stay healthy and pitch relatively well this spring, which they have. So then that leaves two spots, two spots for guys like Randy Wolf. Uh, non-roster invite, Scott Baker, non-roster invite, both guys coming off Tommy John, uh, Brandon Maurer, a kid who started in the rotation last year, exceptionally talented, very good player, uh, Blake Bevan and Hector Nolesi are basically your candidates for those last couple spots. So that's what's been the most interesting aspect. Hernandez was as good as ever last year. He had the highest strikeout rate and lowest walk rate of his career, continued to induce ground balls on at least half of the balls hit in play. He did this all despite losing two miles an hour on his fastball between 2011 and 2013. He's always done a really good job of getting whiffs and ground balls with his breaking pitches, but to be able to actually strike out more batters than ever while reducing velocity is still really impressive. Uh, what did Hernandez do last year that allowed him to be so effective? Well, I think part of it is, is he's learned how to pitch, not just throw over the years, so he understands how to set batters up. And... 
you know, his changeup is one of the best in the game. I mean, I, I mean, people talk about the fastball and the lack of velocity, but that's really not his best pitch. His changeup is his best pitch. That's what gets the strikeouts. Um, you know, his breaking stuff is really good. It, 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 he's got four-plus pitches. Um, and w- w- with the fastball, too, it, it's odd in that regard. I mean, Felix throws his changeup at 90 miles an hour. So it's not about... You know, it's not about changing speeds. It's the movement that he generates. It's like a split finger almost. And and I think that's one thing. I mean, you know, I, I love kind of the, the velocity measures, but at the same time with Felix, it's tough because, you know, his two-seamer, his change-up, you never know what the speed is. He messes around with it. And if you look at Pitch Tracker sometimes and Pitch FX, they don't know what the hell he's throwing half the time. I mean, it's funny, you know, because we'll ask him, he'll say, hey, he threw him a fastball. He goes, no, that's changeup. You're like, well, I was 91. Yeah, I just threw it a little harder. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's kind of different. I mean, yeah, he's not the he's not a 95 guy anymore. He's not a, a 95, 96, 97 guy like he was when he was chubby Felix first person on the scene. No, he's he, he's not that guy. I mean, you know, he'll hit 95, but that's when he rears back and really wants to throw a four seamer by somebody. He's smarter than that. He doesn't want to waste everything early by trying to just pump Pete at guys. He realizes that, you know, he's better off throwing the two-seamer, getting a ground ball, using the changeup, you know, using those things to get ahead and then putting away with the changeup or something like that. So he's got he's got an understanding of who he is more as a pitcher than just a thrower. So the Mariners have made some pretty big um, acquisitions this winter. Uh, what would they consider a successful year this year in terms of wins, in terms of player development? Well, I mean, that's the thing. Is like, like you and I, and I'm sure a lot of people read perspectives. They look at it logically. You look at it. You look at the numbers, the pull-down numbers. You can look at the projections and all these things, and you say, well, maybe this is a 79-win team. And, and, and you think about it. Well, they went 69 last year to go up 10 wins. That's hard to do in big league baseball. I think people don't realize to add wins, to increase wins, is very difficult to do um, because everybody else is getting a little bit better as well. And the Mariners playing one of the toughest divisions in baseball yeah. with the Angels or with the A's, the Rangers, and even the Angels, and even the Astros will be better. But yeah, I think you know if you get to 79, 80 wins, if you're flirting with 500, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. But when you sign 240 million dollar player. <laughs> You know, there's a different expectation level. I think the Mariners' ownership and, and upper-level management realizes, too, they have to be realistic. I mean, sure, they want to be in the mix for the playoff race, especially with that extra wild card. But, you know, I think they just want to be better. Like, if they're flirting with 500, that'll be being successful. I think, too, just playing relevant baseball after July 1st might be a first for them for a while because if you think about it, they just – they really haven't. I mean, I think July fifteenth, right after the All Star break last year, there was they won like six in a row, and then it seemed like they might be okay, and they just fell off a cliff after that. So no, I think that's an aspect too. Just being competitive, being relevant in the city after July would be probably a bonus. All right. Well, learned a lot about the team. Um, thanks for coming on the show, Ryan. Not a problem. That was Ryan Dibish of the Seattle Times. You can read Ryan at seattletimes.com slash Mariners or follow him on Twitter at Ryan Divish. Tomorrow I'll be discussing the New York Yankees with Daniel Barbarisi of the Wall Street Journal.
Sorry, guys. I needed to refresh my beverage. <coughs> no problem. <coughs> Sam needs new lungs. Yeah, I'll be on mute most of the show. <laughs> if there's a long silence, that means that I'm asking you a question on mute. <laughs> <laughs> All right.